James' readers were living in tough times in the first century, in the early church there. They were, may I remind you, according to the first verse, they were Jewish Christians. Uh, They were scattered uh, because it mentions the, the dispersion of these Christians. And they were being persecuted for their faith. Now, persecution poses some problems, as you can probably imagine, for, for these early Christians. One of those problems, by the way, may be somewhat surprising to us. Persecution constituted a temptation to sin. Just put yourself in their sandals. And you say, well, in what way? Well, first of all, many Christians might be inclined to reply in kind and say things like, well, hey, if they hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back. Some people call this the don't get mad, get even temptation. Right? I don't get, I don't, you know, some people say, well, I don't get even, I get ahead. Right? So temptation sprang from persecution in other ways as well. Uh, the context is helpful here. Uh, the, the, incl- the inclination to use persecution as a justification for our sin. In other words, some of those who were suffering for their Christianity were reasoning along these lines. Hey, my life is so difficult that I am entitled to do whatever I can to make my life more pleasurable. It's kind of the pragmatism. The end justifies the means. And people have often allowed their difficulties to give them some sense of entitlement. It's like, hey, I deserve this sin. And some of them have even allowed themselves to conclude that God is the source of their temptations, which is what the text today is getting at. And and some of them uh, apparently were reasoning along the, the along a wrong line of reasoning. For example, I put it on the screen here for you. Uh, as we saw last time, hey, God is the one who sends us trials. And, and therefore, some people were being tempted to sin as a result of that trial in their life. So the conclusion is, well, then God has tempted me to sin. And so James addresses this very issue in our text today. And so, so one of the things we're going to see is James is, is moving now from the trials into temptations. By the way, same Greek word. But in, in, as he does this, he's going to clear God of the wrongdoing, and he's going to show you who is the true culprit. Who is the true culprit? Well, Scripture is so helpful here. And so remember, just may I remind you in those first 12 verses last time we saw that the mature Christian is patient in trials. You want to know what a mature Christian looks like and acts like and talks like and thinks like? James is the book you go to. And often these trials can become temptations for us. And if we're not careful, those testings on the outside can become temptations on the inside. In other words, what I'm saying is when our circumstances become difficult, it becomes hard. We may find ourselves complaining against God. You might actually question God's love for you, and you might start resisting His will. And so at that point, when when that happens, guess what? Satan loves to provide you with an opportunity to escape the testing. 
He's quite happy to help you. And that opportunity is a temptation. Now, of course, God doesn't want you to yield to temptation, yet neither is He going to spare us from experiencing those testings and trials. So if we are mature, then we must face the testings and trials, and we will be experiencing temptations. It's something that you need to expect. But what is a temptation? Well, here's a good working definition that I like. It's on the screen for you there. A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way, out of the will of God. Let me give you an illustration. For example, uh, let's say you're taking an examination in school, uni, or even through your company you work for. Maybe you might have an examination, and you, you might say, well, hey, is it wrong to want to pass an examination. Of course not. Uh, of course, it's it, that's a good thing to pass your examination. But if you cheat to pass that examination, then you've actually sinned, right? So passing is a good thing, but cheating is a sin when you're trying to accomplish even a good thing. And so that temptation to cheat becomes an opportunity to accomplish a good thing. But the cheating is a bad way to accomplish the good thing. Does that make sense? And so, so you need to understand what a temptation is. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted at least three times in Matthew chapter 4 when he was in the wilderness. So yet he didn't sin. And we'll talk about a little more what that difference is. But look at the text here from James 1 verse 13. These are the words of the living God, and he says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. So here's the main idea from this paragraph in Scripture, that a mature Christian resists temptation by believing God's goodness. We must believe the accurate view of God as he has described himself in Holy Scripture. So the text starts off by telling us what is the source of temptation. Well, the first thing God tells us is, don't blame me, (laughs) right? It's not God. God is not the source of your temptation because the text says that God tempts no one. God tempts no one. You see that right there in verse 13. So nobody should be saying when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. 100%. Now that phrase there means that God is actually untemptable. Uh, In other words, He is without the capacity 
for temptation. It's not even possible for him to do this. And by the way, it's the same as being invincible to the, to the assaults of evil. In other words, the nature of evil actually makes it inherently foreign to God. It's not even in his nature. So the reality is God and evil exist in two distinct realms that never meet. Never meet. Uh, God has no vulnerability to evil. He's utterly impregnable to the onslaught of evil. He's aware of evil, but God is untouched by evil. Does that make sense? I, I hope. Let, let me explain it this way. It's kind of like, imagine you're going to landfill, and, and you see a sunbeam shining down on the landfill, hitting the, the rubbish, so to speak. The, um, but that, that sunbeam shining on the landfill is actually untouched by the rubbish, if you, if you equate the rubbish with evil. Right, and that, and that's that. You need to understand that God is untouched by evil as well. Therefore, He's not even capable of of tempting you. So, where does it come from? What's the source of temptation? Verse fourteen tells us it's actually from within us. Every one of us is, is tempted by our own flesh, as verse fourteen reminds us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the source of temptation is from within a person. It is your own evil desire, your own lust, your inner craving is doing this. So you can't actually say what I used to often say as I try to bail myself out of my, um, my, the consequences for my sin is I used to say that Satan made me do it. You can't honestly say that. Because Satan can't make you do anything. <laughs> he can't. He can tempt you. Just like he did Satan. Or just like he did with Jesus in the wilderness. But Jesus was untouched. Walked away sinless. And James chapter 4 also kind of adds to this here. Look at this. It says this in James 4.1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There you go. That's the bottom line. Temptation comes from within us. So what are the steps in temptation? Number one, there's going to be four steps. Some of you love steps. You, 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 here, you start ticking the boxes, because here you go. You end up at a very bad place here, but notice before you get to the end, which is horrible, here's where it starts. Verse 14, it is the word desire. It, the, the first step starts with your desire. Notice each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, in, in biblical language, by the way, that word desire you see in the text there is, is not something that's intrinsically evil. It just means it's a strong longing in your heart. You, you have this longing, this, this craving for something. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. For example, a woman's beauty is intrinsically 
good. It's something that's actually innocent. And so beauty by itself never forces anybody to sin. Now, we should be capable of noticing God's beautiful handiwork with perfect innocence. It is possible for us to have a detached admiration, uh, kind of like a uh, if you walk into an art gallery, you should have a detached admiration for the beauty of the art before you. However, as you probably know, many, many men in particular have difficulty with women's beauty. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring the beauty, but when that desire for beauty actually turns into lust, then you've actually sinned against God. So where does the fault lie? Well, if you're like our first father in the Garden of Eden, you, you blame shift, right? Oh, you, you, you might blame your wife. You might blame another lady. You, you know, it's your fault. You know, you're so beautiful. I can't help myself or whatever. But it, it, you know, ladies, it's not your fault if God makes you beautiful. And, and, and we should never blame God either for making someone beautiful. But the fault actually lies with a man who's turning his desire into lust. There's a prime example of this in Scripture. King David illustrates this principle very well, in, in a very radical way. Now, the Bible says in Second Samuel, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but the Bible says that while David's armies and the armies of Israel were actually out fighting, and uh, David stays in Jerusalem, Here, there he is, he's lounging and lingering there in his palace. Uh, if he had been with his army where he was supposed to be, he could have actually avoided this, this downward plunge into immorality. But instead of waging physical war out there on the battlefield, the Bible says David fought a spiritual war against temptation, and he lost. And now it started out innocently, as, as temptations often do. The Bible says he was there uh, walking on his palace roof, and the king's eyes caught a woman, a beautiful woman, who was bathing. And that accidental glance, the Bible says, of course, is not a sin. It's not a sin to see a woman, uh, just, to, just to see her. But, but what happened was that glance turned into something else. It was mixed with David's restless urges, and that unintentional glance quickly became a stare. He's now... It turned into gawking, if you will, and wrong meditation in his mind. And so the Bible specifically says he noticed that Bathsheba was very beautiful. And so the focus of his gaze and his internal desires then conceived a very powerful temptation in his heart. And so the, the, that focus changes. So instead of resisting the temptation and fleeing immorality, the Bible tells us to do, what does uh, David do? Well, if you read Second Samuel 11, it says, instead of fleeing immorality, he inquired about her. And then the Bible says he actually sent for her to come to the palace. And then the Bible says he slept with her. And by the way, he did that knowing that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. So do you see the progression? David's sin ended in adultery. His immorality turned into a very desperate attempt to cover up his evil and ultimately led to two deaths. The death 
of Bathsheba's husband, as well as the death of his son that was a result of his one-night fling. So you go from the lust to death. David's temptation is really a textbook example of temptation in sexual lust. And so one of the most frightening things as I read that that passage is that David's sin uh, happened to him even though the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. It can happen to anyone. Every single one of us, this could happen to us. And that that is the, the, the danger, and so we need to beware. We need to beware. Even a great man of God can fall suddenly and severely. So while we're all vulnerable to the sins that Scripture actually forbids, each person has their own set of special desires or lusts. So what might be a temptation for one person might have uh, maybe even no appeal for somebody else, right? So we just heard during prayer time, right? So, so you know, if you have an addiction, you hand your addiction over to someone who's not, who isn't attracted to your addiction, <laughs> right? We just heard an example of that. You know, for example, uh, I've never had same-sex attraction. Uh, that that is a temptation that has never happened to me ever ever. But it might happen to you. That might be a temptation for you to have same-sex attraction. Right? So God makes people differently, and, and, and I'm not saying he gives you that temptation. That's the, James is telling us that doesn't happen. But the, you need to be aware, because people are different, your, your enemies are going to use your weaknesses, your desires against you. For example, there might be a religious legalist that's probably going to be different from the libertines. And and one is drawn to secret sin, the other is drawn to just open evil. So just as one type of bait or lure works well with one kind of fish, uh, a different lure or bait works differently for another kind of fish. You know, for example, maybe a snapper would prefer to have a, a squid. Uh, whereas maybe a gurner, I don't know, you know, maybe a gurner wants to something else, right? You know, the, the fish are different. People are different. It's our own lust that you should be most concerned about. So it starts with desire. And no, step number two is deception. Deception. Notice the terms of deception in verse 14. Because it says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. When he is lured and enticed. So it starts with deception. So no temptation appears as temp- temptation, right? That's too obvious. It always seems more alluring than it actually really is. And so James uses two illustrations here from the world of sports to actually prove his point. He uses the word, first of all, lured. Lured is the idea of baiting a trap. Picture a trap that's baited for a mouse or a rat, right? Do any of you set the mouse trap out with no cheese on it or peanut butter or whatever you use? Do, do any of you, have any of you ever done that? I'm curious. Oh, that's funny. Nobody's done that. No, what we do, we set the mouse trap or rat trap out and we put a lure on it. Why do we do that? Because even a dumb mouse is not going to go to that and die. 
for nothing. They need to be lured, right? They need to be lured. So they're looking at the cheese, as you can see, looking at the cheese and somehow miss everything else. Funny how that works. The other word used in verse 14 is the word entice. Now, that, the word entice means you bait a hook. Any of you ever tried to catch a fish with a bare hook? No. That's not what Satan does. Satan covers the hook. He, he gives you something that's, that, that looks good, but it's corrupted, and it's covering the hook because most of us aren't dumb enough to bite the bare hook. The hunter or fisherman is using bait to attract and catch their prey. Why do we do that? Because no animal is going to deliberately step into a trap. No fish is going to knowingly bite a bare hook. <laughs> and the idea is there, you, you, you hide the trap, you hide the hook to catch your prey. That's what temptation can do. Temptation always carries with it some bait that's appealing to our natural desires. 1 John 2 mentions three temptations, kinds of temptations, the lust of your flesh, the lust of the eyes, and your pride of life. So, so you can expect the cheese or the fish on the hook there to be either the lust of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, the pride of life. Let me give you some other examples how this works, how, how temptation carries with it some bait. For example, do you think Lot would have ever ended up in Sodom if he hadn't seen the well-watered plains? Probably not. It was the well-watered plains, the Bible says, that drew his gaze and his attention toward Sodom and eventually ends up sitting in the gate. David would have never committed adultery had he seen the tragic consequences. If he had seen the end result of his sin, I don't think he would have gone there. You say, what were those consequences? Well, David's baby died. One of his brave soldiers was murdered. And the Bible says his daughter Tamar was raped. Just to name a few. God said the sword would not depart his house. So do you see the problem, friends? The, the bait actually keeps us from seeing the consequences of our sin. And one thing that's going to help you not to sin is actually think about the end. Think about the consequences. Where, where does this lead me? For example, I, I've written out a list of anticipated consequences of my immorality. If I was immoral, where would that lead me? And I actually have a list of 25, which I'm not going to bore you with the whole list. But um, as I was thinking of the example of David in 2 Samuel 11, where would that lead me? And, and it's really bad when you start writing it out and you start thinking about this, and it, it actually drives you away from your sin. You don't even want to go to step number one. Uh, for example, uh, obviously I would grieve my Lord, displeasing the very one whose opinion matters most to me. Uh, there would be a loss of reward and accommodation from God. I, I can picture myself trying to look in the face of Jesus Christ as I'm there in heaven and answer and give an account. I would face God's chastening if I'm, if I'm a believer, the Bible says God loves His children and He chastens them. 
He disciplines them. I would cause untold hurt to my best friend and loyal wife. I would hurt my children. I would shame my church family. Probably diseases happen often as a result of immorality. I would bring shame upon myself and destroy my testimony. And Proverbs says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Those are just just nine things out of the 25 that I wrote down. And so, my friends, Scripture and God is telling you, don't be fooled by the bait. Don't be fooled by the bait. See the hook. See the trap. It's there, and it's deadly. Step number three is disobedience. Step three is disobedience. Because look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So that third step is, it's actually that of design. When the plans start to be made to fulfill the desires that you've, you, you've started to justify in your mind. And this stage actually then involves your will. It's our conscious decision to, I'm going to pursue my lust until my lust is satisfied. And because your will's involved here, this stage is where most of our guilt lies. What has been longed for and rationalized is now consciously pursued now as a matter of choice. And so what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, the solution is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, when he, he tells you to radically amputate yourself. And he didn't mean that literally. So radical amputation, according to Jesus, is when he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Why would Jesus say that? Because you, you're to treat sin like gangrene. Gangrene. If somebody had gangrene in a leg the doctor amputates your leg so that gangrene doesn't spread through your whole body and kill you. So you eliminate the source. That's why Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. He meant that figuratively. Radical amputation is, is the solution here. And then you replace your sin with something of like kind. But step number four is death. Verse 15 says, when, when that desire... Uh, eventually gives birth to sin. Notice the sin when it's fully grown. It, it gives birth to something. It brings forth death. Death. So the disobedience gives birth to death. Now sometimes it might be years for your sin to mature to that point, but when it does, the result will be death. And so if we will only believe God's Word here, and, and if we will only see the final tragedy it's going to encourage you not to yield to temptation. So whenever you're faced with temptation, what do you do? You get your eyes off the bait. You get your eyes off that yummy cheese sitting on the trap. And you see the consequences of sin, which is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news about temptation. But there is some good news. When you are tempted, there is good news. You are able to resist temptation. You say, how do I do that? How do I resist temptation? You always defeat sin with superior pleasure. 
you always defeat sin with superior pleasure. Never forget that saying. You must believe that. That's what this text is teaching us. You always defeat sin with superior pleasure. If you keep trying to tell yourself that, you know, if you're trying to deceive yourself that sin is ugly, it's, um, you know, you're, you're not going to have fun doing that, or, you know, you, you keep tell, trying to tell yourself those kind of lies, you're probably going to end up doing it. You have to come up with something greater than the sin. And this, the solution for temptation starts here in verse 17. Because notice, notice our, our, our temptation is to be deceived. And that's why verse 16 says, do not be deceived. <laughs> the temptation is not as good as it looks. Look at the hook. Look at the trap. Do not be deceived. Why? Because verse 17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The solution for your temptation is close fellowship with God. Close fellowship with God. You must know the goodness of God, that God is always good, and He is, that's what He is. So one of the enemy's tricks, though, is to convince us that our Heavenly Father is actually holding out on us. Oh, He's not good! Just like Satan did for Adam and Eve in the garden. Oh, he doesn't really love you. He, God doesn't really care for you. The goodness of God, by the way, is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. See, if you really believe God is good, you're not going to yield to the temptation. And since God is good, we do not need any other person or anything then to meet our needs. And so once you start to doubt God's goodness, though, you're, you're actually going to be attracted to Satan's offers. The cheese on the trap will start to look good. That ugly, disgusting fish on the hook will start to appear good. So, you defeat sin with superior pleasure. Let's look at the superior pleasure mentioned in this particular passage. The, the first thing I want to highlight for you from the text is that you, you believe that God gives only good gifts. That's what it says. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the implication is then, if it's not a good gift, it didn't come from God. Does that make sense? Everything good in this world comes from God. Satan can't create anything, so he just takes God's good stuff and he corrupts it tries to make it look good. So if it does not come from God, it is not good. But if it comes from God, God says it has to be good. Let me give you an example. You probably know the Apostle Paul was, had to go through trials in his life, and the Apostle Paul mentions a, about a thorn in his flesh that was actually given to him by God. It was a trial, a testing in his life to perfect him. It seemed to be a strange gift from God, yet it became a tremendous blessing to him. And he even talked about it. That it was this this thing in his life, whatever that was, that humbled him and, and caused God's strength to be magnified in his life. And Paul believed it was good. It was from God. 
But we also need to believe the way God gives is good. Not just the gift. You say, well, yeah, I, I love I love that gift, but you know, I don't like the way I got it. No, God says the way he gives it is perfect as well. It is possible for somebody to give us a gift in a manner that is less than loving. You've probably had that happen, I assume. Probably all of us have received, received some gift. We thought, well, they could have done that in a more tactful way or some different way that, that I'd actually feel loved. But when God gives a blessing, He does it in a loving manner. He does it in the best way possible. He fits your needs. So believe the way God gives is good as well. But number three, believe God gives constantly. Constantly. It's not just one off. Because notice uh, again that this, every perfect gift is from above, coming from this Father who's crea- the creator of all the lights in the universe here. And it says there is no variation with him. No shadow due to change. He doesn't change. He's not fluctuating. He's constantly giving us what we need and sometimes even what we want. But you also need to believe that God does not change, as it says. There's no shadow due to change in him. He's the father of lights. Those are some some great truths for us to believe that will help us to fellowship with him, stay in fellowship with him. But number two, the, the solution also involves this, that you need to understand victory comes through living in the truth. You don't just know the truth, don't just know who God is, that he is good and always good, but then you have to live in that truth because verse 18 tells us how that is even possible. Verse 18 tells it, it's of his own will. It's God's will that accomplishes these purposes in us. He's the one who brought us forth by the word of truth. And he had a purpose in that, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And James says that we've been brought forth. Notice, how were you brought forth? It's by the word of truth. Now, that same motherly word that gave birth to us is also the one that nurtures us, protects us. It gives us all we need to grow. That's the idea. And so when those inevitable and appealing temptations come your way, God's Word can literally deliver us from evil. King David said in Psalm 119, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So I ask you, friends, are you treasuring God's Word in your heart? Do you, or, or are you one of those people who just kind of merely dabble in the Scripture now and then? You might immerse yourself in its purifying, refreshing water once in a while, but, but most of the time you're dying of thirst. Do you search through it just mechanically to just kind of satisfy your curiosity? Or do you actually allow God's Word to search your heart in order for God to cleanse your heart and mind? See, friends, reading and meditating on God's Word and memorizing the Bible is is the greatest, most perfect gift that comes from above. It's going to help you to stand strong in the moment of temptation. And number three here is that... 
to understand the solution, you need to understand this as well, that the solution is to clearly identify the lures and the traps in your life. See, one trap might be tempting to you that's not tempting to somebody else. One lure might be tempting to you that's not tempting to somebody else. So you need to identify these things for what they really are. See, you you take the cheese off the trap. You, You take... You're taking the fish off the hook, exposing it for what it really is. Hopefully it won't deceive you. So because of the ability of sin to mask itself and deceive us, a lure may appear harmless and innocent to our eyes, but in reality it has awful consequences. So let's just think about some practical application here. What are some lures that tempt us? Let me name the three deep idols of our hearts, first of all. First of all, beware of the lure of significance. The first deep idol of our heart is, it may not, may not be for you, so, so, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it, but it, it may not fit you, okay? Uh, but for people like me, significance is a deep idol of the heart. And it's, it's a huge temptation that can lead down the wrong path. Beware of it. Expose it for what it is. A second deep idol of our heart is comfort. Comfort. Now, many people have been caught in sins, various kinds of sins, because they allowed themselves to nurture a lie in their mind that they deserved comfort. It's okay for me to sin because I need some comfort. I can't live without this. Third deep idol of the heart is control. Control. Some, some people have this idea that, like James is talking about here, that there's no evil within us. There's no evil within me. And many want to believe that human beings are essentially good. It's, it's the environment's problem. Yeah, blame shift. What's the reality according to God? According to God, there's actually, as he says here in James, what's the problem? There's forces in us that are opposed to God. And the Bible teaches human beings have the capacity for evil. And how else can can you explain things like the Holocaust? Or how, how can you explain Stalin's terror in Russia? Or Mao's terror in China? Horrible evils. Tens of millions of people died. So if you don't understand the grave danger you're in, then we we make ourselves more susceptible to the temptation. So expose the hook. Expose the trap for what it is. The fourth lure is to believe that sin is not really sin. (laughs) Right? Make Make it good. And since sin's not really sin, then you don't need to take it seriously. I mean, just just ignore the hook sticking out of the fish. Go for it. And one of the ways this is actually being done is you you don't call sin sin like the Bible does. You just call it a disease. Have you noticed how the world does this all the time? Right? You go to a psychologist or some counselor. Right? This had... You know, in their worldly way of thinking, you're no longer a drunk. Like God calls you, you now have the disease of alcoholism. You just put ISM on the end of a word, 
And then now, guess what? You have a disease. Do you see how that works? That's worldly wisdom, and it happens all the time. We switch a sin into a disease. You can't help yourself. You can do something about your sin, but you can't do anything about alcoholism. And another way our world is not taking sin seriously is by excusing it. What are they doing now? Oh, you have this gene in your body, and this is why you're doing this. It's because of your DNA. You can't help yourself. Right? For example, many people say that homosexuality is no longer a sin. It's just the way you were born. You have the gene. You have the DNA. And so people say, you're born a homosexual. It's no longer a choice. But the reality is you do have a choice. It is your choice. And sin is something very serious. It needs to be exposed for what it is. Now, there's a crucial issue here. How how do we respond? How are we going to respond to temptation and sin? Well, first of all, don't give up. Don't just throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, I can't do anything about it. And, And certainly don't ignore your sin. Don't blame God. Don't blame Satan. Because God said it's not his fault, and Satan can't make you do anything. And so be, what you need to do, though, is, is you, you need to run to God, confess and forsake your sin, and ask him to enable you to please him. And then you do what David did after he was confronted by his sin. <laughs> he confessed it. He forsook it. He repented. And, and the famous psalm 51 mentions some of the things that David did. For example, Psalm 51, verse 2, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Look what he says here. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's not covering it up. He's not blame shifting and saying, You know, God, you made me this way. I have a gene in my body that caused this. It's my DNA. I'm attracted to women. No. You know, verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart. He recognized it's a heart issue. Renew a right spirit within me. A fifth lure is this desire to accuse God of evil intent. <laughs> Don't blame God. He, he, he is not guilty of evil when he brings you trial and testing. So in verse 16, notice James clearly teaches us the need for spiritual discernment in verse 16. Because he says, do not be deceived. It's not an option. Such discernment allows us to distinguish them between between the trials and temptations. But it's also also going to prevent you from questioning the very character of God. You will believe God is always good. Our tendency is to do what Job did and when trials come into our life, what's the, the number one question Job asked in the book of Job? Why? He wanted to know why. That's our tendency. But God wants us to know Him and to trust Him. God never answered Job's why question. So what you believe is really important. Particularly what you believe about God is most important, particularly when you're confronted by a trial and testing. I love uh, the, the two great truths that come from quieting a noisy soul. These are um, stabilizing truths for noisy soul. If you're not familiar with them, I can give them to you later. I have them all written out. 
Uh, I usually keep them in my office. These are truths to meditate upon when you are tempted with a noisy soul. The, the two great ones are that God is always good and God is always great. He's both at the same time. Now, there's, there's a lot of truth coming out of each one of those. Those are the truths you have to meditate upon to enable your soul to be quiet, to be at rest. If you're thinking of anything other than that, and you're meditating upon other truths, your soul is going to be very noisy, and you will be tempted toward evil. So there's no reason why a Christian has to yield to temptation. In fact, Corinthians, Paul, Paul says in Corinthians, that God has provided you a way of escape. No temptation has overtaken you, he says. But it, it's all common to man. We're all tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's common to man. And so God provides the way of escape so you can bear it. You can endure it. You don't have to give in. But you have to learn to resist its deadly force, or you can never grow to be a spiritually mature Christian like James is talking about here. So here's the proposition for today, friends. What does God want you to do? God wants you to resist temptation by believing the truth about Him. The way you defeat sin is with superior pleasure. Superior pleasure must be God. Particularly in this text is God is good. And God is always good, even when you are in a trial. Even when God gives you testing, God is always good. And you have to believe that. That becomes your superior pleasure to overcome the temptation. If you don't believe that, you're probably going to end up at step number four which is death. It's a really bad consequence. If you want to avoid death, deal with the first step, your desires. It starts there. May God enable you to resist temptation by believing the truth about Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, showing us that You are always good. May we believe that. <laughs> thank You for showing us these steps here uh, that lead to death. And thank you for showing us you are not the one to blame for temptation. And for also showing us we don't have to give in to temptation. We can resist. We can overcome. We can be mature Christians. May we see truly see what that looks like here and to live in a way that's pleasing to you for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.